собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле... Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. So if you like this podcast, if you listen to it regularly, even if you just listen to it off and on, uh, and you'd like to support it, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So this week's episode actually turns out to be the second of four interviews related to Ukraine. Um, I didn't plan it this way. I rarely actually plan the topics I cover. They tend to just pop up. That's why they tend to be so eclectic. So I guess it's just serendipity this time that you know I have four consecutive episodes related to Ukraine. So last week dealt with the politics of history and memory with Victoria Smolkina and Georgi Kasyanov. And the episode you're hearing right now is with Sean Griffin about his Eve Levin Prize winning article, Revolution, Raskol, and Rock and Roll, the 1020th anniversary of the day of baptism of Rus in the Russian Review. And the next one will be on the history of Kievan Rus with Christian Raffensperger. And finally, uh, the last one will be on wartime mental health and trauma in Ukraine with doctors Carmen Andrescu and Alexander Dombrovsky. So keep your ears open for um, those upcoming interviews. Sean Griffin is a core fellow in the Collegium of Advanced Studies at the University of Helsinki. His research focuses on the history of the Orthodox Church and its role in the making of cultural memory from the liturgy and chronicles of medieval Kiev to the art house cinema and digital propaganda of modern Moscow. His first book, The Liturgical Past in Byzantium and Early Rus, was published by Cambridge University Press, and it was the winner of the W. Bruce Lincoln Book Prize and the Ecclesiastical History Society Book Prize. And as you previously heard, Sean is now the winner of the Eve Levin Prize for his article, Revolution, Raskol, and Rock and Roll, the 1000th and 20th anniversary of the day of baptism of Rus in the Russian Review. Here's Sean Griffin. So, uh, Sean, it's really nice to talk to you. you. You won the Russian Review's Levin Article Prize. H- how does that work? Do you like? Do you like have to enter your essay, or did they just send you an email saying, "Hey, guess what? You won"? Like, what's the what's the background? No, I I got an email from the editor and saying, "Congratulations, you've won the Eve Levine Prize." And I was like, I didn't know that I was uh, eligible for that. And he actually said, "Well, the prize didn't even exist when you submitted your article." So. Uh, I can I can imagine that you weren't prepared. I mean, with the thing with prizes, I've won a few of them. Like, if you're the kind of person who's expecting to win prizes, then then you're probably um, too predictable. I would say, like, this, all of, whenever this happens, it is just it is just a gift. Like, it is it is like manna from heaven. It comes out of nowhere, and you never. I mean, you just can't expect that something like this is ever going to happen. Do they give you money or anything? Like, what do you get? Do you get a plaque? Um. Well, I do. I do have a. I do have a six foot tall golden statue of myself now with the Russian Review on the on the base of it. Actually, no. I think there's some. There's a. There's there's a. There's a, a nominal cash prize that I have not received yet because I'm in Hel- I'm in Helsinki and they're sending it to 
uh, an address in the United States. So, all right. Well, I didn't know. I, I was curious about you know the recipient side. Like, how does that work? So, um, but anyway, so you won this. You won this prize for for an article you wrote uh, called "Revolution Rascal and Rock and Roll: The 1020th Anniversary of the Day of Baptism of Rus." And just to start out, what's the origin of this article? Because, you know, as you know, articles in, in academic journals tend to come from larger projects. So how does this fit in the scheme of things? This article was born in a bar in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, in November 2016. So I was a fellow, I had a Volkswagen fellowship in Münster, Germany, had the best year of my life. My wife and me, it was before we had kids, we traveled all over, it was fabulous. And so we were spending the weekend in Amsterdam, and I was writing, I was struggling to write the introduction to my first book, which was called The Liturgical Past in Byzantium and Early Bruce. And in that first book, I uncovered the liturgical sources of some of the really foundational passages in the Povis the Remenichlet, or the, 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 what we sometimes call the Rus primary chronicle, right? So this is like the foundational written history of the East Slavs, right? If you're in Kiev or Moscow, and you say, hey, where did your people come from? They're going to tell you the stories that are in this, this chronicle, right? And the star, really, the main star of, of that first book is Prince Vladimir or Vladimir of Kiev. And I just didn't know how to start the book. It was boring. I didn't have my hook. I mean, I'd never expected anyone to read the book anyways, but if somebody did happen to pick it up, I wanted them to at least be entertained for the first couple of pages. So I'm sitting in this bar having a drink, and I look up into my utter, sh utter shock. Vladimir Putin is standing next to Petra Kirill, just outside the walls of the Kremlin, and he is consecrating this gigantic 80-foot statue of, of course, who the Russians would call St. Vladimir the Great. And I was floored. Because then what happened next, Kirill, the patriarch, so that's the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, he, at the very end of the ceremony, performed a liturgical service, a small blessing of this new monument, which has become a very regular practice in, in post-Soviet Russia and Ukraine. Um, and it was the perfect, I mean, it was just, it was, it was, I just instantly recognized that like, this is the perfect opening because the two leaders sat there or, or stood there in front of the television cameras. And the story that they told about Prince Vladimir was precisely the myths about the man that are enshrined in the Rus Primary Chronicle. And my argument in the book was that these myths derived from the liturgical services of the Byzantine Rite. And then the patriarch ends the service by using, you know, by using a liturgical service to bless the monument. So it, it was all very tidy. And that was, that was how I became aware of this monument. But at that, I was also, I mean, a kind of a burning question took possession of my mind at that moment, too. I was like, why the hell is there now an 80-foot statue of a late 10th century ruler standing just outside? Well, it's, it's, it's actually, it's um, some Borovitskaya Ploshit. So it's not right outside the walls of the Kremlin, but they actually, as part of these, these memory rituals that they've started doing now, they actually parade from the Kremlin. So it's, it's within a short walk to the Kremlin. And I just needed to know, like, why is this statue here? I, I had no clue. Because as I, as I said, I, at that point, I'm studying the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, which are uh, fairly distantly removed from the present day. And so once I got the first book done, 
I, I, I wanted to solve this riddle. I wanted to solve this puddle. Why was that statue there? Why were Kirill and Putin standing shoulder to shoulder and telling sacred stories about the sacred past at, at, in these highly publicized televisual rituals? And that's the origin story. That's kind of how this whole project started. And it becomes, so that, that this kind of investigation leads me down this rabbit hole where I start to discover this extremely rich and colorful and, and utterly surreal world of, of the church's contemporary uh, memory politics. And so now it's what we're going to talk about today is one chapter of a larger project that is called the sacred reign of Vladimir Putin religion, memory war. Um, and it's under under contract with Cornell university press. And so that is basically, this was the beginning of that larger project. Not a lot of people work on Russian Orthodoxy. Certainly, not not that many people work on it in the 13th century, at least in, in you know 13th and 11th, 12th century, and at least in English. So I'm just curious, like, what drew you into what what sparked your interest into Russian Orthodoxy in the church? Well, I was determined to get a PhD that would ensure that I would never get a permanent job. That was really my goal. No, obviously, I'm joking. Um, well, I. Basically, well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm sitting in Professor Gail Lindhoff's class uh, on kind of medieval roots at UCLA, and we're reading the story of Princess Olga's baptism. And I just made the remark, you know, some of the parts of this story are from the liturgical services of the Orthodox Church. And she looks at me and she says, I don't think anybody's ever noticed that before. You should write a dissertation about it. And, and so I did because, you know, I just, because of my own personal experience, like what led me to study the Russian Orthodox church is that as a 20 year old young man, living a very hedonistic life in Malibu, California, I had a very unexpected conversion to Christianity and eventually became a member of, of the Orthodox church in the Russian tradition. It wasn't a Moscow patriarchy church, but it was a very Russian church in what's called the Orthodox church of America. And so, and I was very into it. I was one of these very annoying firing convert types. And, um, I went to all of the services and I became what's called a reader, which is like the, you know, the, 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 basically the most minor type of, of, of cleric. Okay. And so I chanted these services, you know, on an almost daily basis for several years. And so I knew the church books, Kind of, I mean, I, I kind of knew lots of them, large, large sections of them by heart. And so, when I got to graduate school, I quickly realized that when it came to Russian studies, this was a very unusual skill set to have, because I could I could see this plain as day in a lot of the foundational monuments of East Slavic civilization, and it was completely uh, invisible to everybody else. So. Everything that I've done as a scholar and the things I'm doing now, all of it has been born out of my personal experience as a uh, practicing member of the Orthodox community. And that includes, like, so how do I get interested in post-Soviet Russia? Well, I ended up living for a year and a half in St. Petersburg with a uh, so a, you know, a mini child family. Um, they had nine kids. The father was at one point kind of a well-known late Soviet 
post-Soviet priest who had, by the time I lived in them had already passed away. Uh, five of the children were boys, men, and four of the five men were priests. So it was like I was living in a Leskov novel, all right? Like I was having this very unusual um, kind of immersion in the in the post-Soviet Russian Orthodox Church and the culture and the people that are part of this very colorful, very uh, alien world from you know a Western secular and particularly academic perspective. Do you feel that your um, like personal experience and and being a member of the church and learning all this does this give you a? I mean, it, it sounds like it does because you already alluded to it, but does it give you something that you feel that other scholars who work on orthodoxy don't have because you know the religious material? There are some really outstanding scholars that I can think of who are certainly not members of the church and who do outstanding work on the history of the Orthodox Church. So I wouldn't, I, I'd certainly not a prerequisite, but in my own experience, I have found it to be absolutely essential. You know, we, when you do something, when you practice something, when something becomes not just a set of abstract principles or a set of narratives that you read out of a book, but when you, it is something that you live you come to know that thing in, in, a, in a very different way. And it allows you to describe it in a very different way. You know, I can think of when I describe the liturgical services like I do in my first book and like I do now, because I chant them myself, I have, you know, it's like a poet writing about poetry, right? Or it's, it's, like, uh, it's like an athlete talking about their experience in, in, what, in the sporting contest, right? Like, you just have a different perspective because you do it as opposed to just study it. So I think I do think I do think it can be a help. Yeah. And and what about like the fact that you're a member of this community? Does that make you sensitive to? You know, it, it like you said, it it's not abstract for you. So you know, you have to you you're dealing with a subject that affects the lives and influences real people and their identity and their understanding of themselves in the world. Um, does that, does that lead you to be more sensitive in terms of how that community would, you know, receive your ideas if they were exposed to them? <laughs> That's a great question. I think it may make me less sensitive because as a member of the community, I feel like I, ha I, I can criticize it. Um, because I mean, in a way, in a way, being a part of the community and having, you know, perhaps this is, you know, this is not the kind of information that one should share on a supposedly academic podcast. But you know, at a very dark time in my life, the light found me. Okay, and 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 it has at absolutely unexpected moments in my life appeared again and again when I'm never expecting it. And, and to see the community that, from which that light has shown for me in my own personal subjective experience, to see it exploited in the way it is exploited by Patriarch Creole and Putin, to see something that I love so dearly and something that I know can be so beautiful, to see it turned into you know, a justification for the invasion of Ukraine to see, to see the, to see the church turned into a caricature that is not, not only not 
reflective of traditional Orthodox Christianity, but which is just plainly and obviously evil, to be in a position where I can do the research and expose that evil, I find it, it's, it's incredibly inspiring. And, and in a way, this may sound really corny, but it's almost like a personal mission. Like, I, I, am, I am kind of on a mission to decolonize, uh, to, to decolonize Russian imperialism from liturgical studies and to show, and to show how over the centuries the idol of the state has has used prayer to quite frankly brainwash people into into you know sacralizing the kremlin sacralizing the state and to thereby legitimize you know like for instance right now kleptocratic uh regimes that are sending tens of thousands of people to die okay so yeah i and and because i'm orthodox and because i'm inside that world and because it's something that as you can tell from the way I'm speaking about it is is very important to me, I feel compelled to to bring it to people's attention because the vast majority of the people on earth right now, when they think about the Russian Orthodox Church at this moment, they have an overwhelmingly negative view, I would imagine. And that is deservedly so. Because if the only church you know is this church where Kirill is standing next to Putin and blessing soldiers to die in some make-believe holy war in Ukraine, then you should hate that thing. But I suppose that what I'm trying to do in a lot of my work is to say, that is not, that is not orthodoxy. And that is not the church. That is what Sergei Fudel, a gulag prisoner and a layman in the Orthodox Church, is what he called the dark double of the church. Okay. This thing that puts on the garments of, right, of of holiness, but but serves but substitutes, you know, God, the light, Christianity, the person of Christ. It substitutes it with this with you know the Russian state, right? So, anyways, I'm getting carried away. Forgive me. <laughs> no, no, it's it's fine. I mean, this is why I asked because. One, I'm interested in this. I'm always interested in what motivates people to do what they do. But the fact that you do have this very personal connection, and you, it, you, just from you talking, one can tell it's a very you have a very passionate, you know, <laughs> a voice about these things. And you know, for most of us in doing academic work, it tends to be abstract, right? We're you know, and in historians, you're dealing with dead people, so it's like, yeah. You might want to do right by them, but it's not a personal investment in like like what you're doing. Um, so let's turn to some of the things that you're talking about in this article. So your article treats the 1,000th and 20th anniversary of this day of baptism of Rus that was held in Kiev in, in 2008. And uh, what's the story behind this baptism that, you know, you started by talking about the Chronicles and, you know, we've, those of us who've had to read that stuff, we remember them well, but what's the story behind this baptism in 988? That depends on your sources and who you ask, right? So by far the most famous story and the one that, you know, Putin and Kirill and, and, you know, kind of the Kremlin propagandists, the one that they've been repeating all these these last 25, 30 years. It's the story found in the Rus Primary Chronicle, right? In the Povest of Remnikliet. And this is the story that, like exactly you said, so many of us would know, right? The, the, this conversion narrative of the great sinner of Vladimir to the great saint, okay? 
his, you know, the speech he has with the philosopher, you know, then the the miraculous conversion he has at the siege of Kherson, and then he goes back to Kiev and he he him, you know, he oversees the mass baptism of Rus in the Nineveh River in, in 988. That is that is the myth, you know, about Vladimir and the baptism of Rus. His professional historians, of course, have a well, I mean, to be frank, there's very points of consensus are relatively few and disagreements are many. And the reason for that is that none of the surviving record, we, there were no, there's no eyewitnesses accounts to what happened. And the earliest accounts that we do have were written down 150 years after the event. So as the very, you know, as the, as the eminent early 20th century philologist Alexei Shakmatov said, you know, the chroniclers basically, it, it all had been lost to time and the chroniclers were built we're forced to build an edifice upon the sand, okay? And then, of course, what I've argued in my first book is that what they used to build that edifice was the stories they got from the liturgy, okay? But the stories that professional historians today use, the most common construction goes something like this. It's 987. Um, a, a Byzantine usurper, basically, named Bardas Focus, he puts together an army and starts the march towards Constantinople. The legitimate emperor Basil II is not prepared to fight him. And so he negotiates with the Northern barbarian Vladimir to basically come and save his city. And the agreement they reach is, I will give you, this is Basil II saying to Libra, I will give you the hand of my sister Anna in marriage, you know, a princess born in the purple. So of, of the Imperial Byzantine family. I will give you your hand in marriage if you if you are, agree to convert to you know Byzantine Christianity to our to our religion. Vladimir agrees. He sends six thousand troops. They play a decisive role in in helping Basil retain his throne. And then Vladimir goes back to Kiev and awaits his Byzantine bride, but she never shows up. So he marches back down to Kirsonessus. Seizes, seizes the city and rather than make yet another enemy um, Basil II decides to fulfill his promise and he sends uh, Anna Vladimir's baptized and they and a party of clerics return to Kiev and oversee you know the the gradual conversion of Rus. This was not, I mean historians today understand this was not a instantaneous one-time thing that happened it was a much longer, much more gradual process so those those are the two basic narratives. One kind of well-known and mythological, the other, you know, probably the most plausible and most consistent historiographical reconstruction of, of scholars. Now for the, for the celebration itself, I mean, you, you chart how this has, you know, been changing over the last hundred or so, even longer years. So what's the history behind the celebration to recognize this mythical or actual day of baptism? Well, so the thing is, if you watch one of these, uh, you know, if you watch what happens on the Dien Kershinya Rusi, either the day of the baptism of, of Rus, um, you would probably be tempted to think like, oh, this must be an ancient time-honored tradition. You know, this, 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 this must have been going on for centuries, which is, of course, what they want you to think. But no, it is a completely contrived, artificial, invented tradition. Um, the first celeb... So there's absolutely no record of the day of the baptism of Rus in any of the surviving medieval or early modern liturgical manuscripts. This was not something that existed. From about the 14th, 15th century, we have manuscript evidence of a feast day in honor of St. 
Vladimir, Vladimir the Great. Okay, so he's we know he's been recognized as a saint by that time. It's not until 1888, though, on the 900th uh, jubilee of the baptism of Ruth, that anyone ever thinks to turn this into a day celebrating it. And if you're interested in what happened in 1888, uh, Heather Coleman has written a really interesting article on this that that I would point people towards. Um, and it's it's really interesting. Not not the uh, topic of my of my paper, however. So the first one is in 1888. The next one doesn't happen until 1988 when Mikhail Gorbachev shocks party stalwarts by permitting the church to celebrate the millennial of the baptism of Ruth. And this really was this this 1,000 year anniversary of the baptism of Ruth. It really was like a watershed moment in in the history of of, of the you know the late Soviet the late Soviet Union. And, you know, when people point to the beginning of what is known in church circles as the second baptism of Rus, they point to 1988. Like it wasn't 1991. It was actually, it was three years earlier. This is when this, the mass return to religion begins. This is when the Renaissance or what people call the Vazarajdenia Pravoslavia, the, the rebirth of Orthodoxy. It really begins in 1988. However, the political context of that celebration is very different than what we end up with in 2008, okay? The 1988 celebration was carried out in the very specific context, like I was saying, of perestroika and glasnost. And the main purpose of the celebration politically was to kind of renegotiate the role of religion in the USSR. In 2008, the day of the baptism of Rus is kind of resurrected in a completely different political context, one that is born out of the disintegration and collapse of the USSR. And so even though there, you know, there's no doubt that the earlier celebrations, 1888, 1988, there's no doubt that they played a role, but they don't, in my opinion, in my view, they don't influence the 2008 celebrations or the 2013 or the 2018 celebrations in quite the way that one might expect. And what about the, you know, you know, obviously the celebration takes place in Kyiv, but I would imagine given the politics between Ukraine and Russia in 2008, right? You had the first Orange Revolution in 2004. Uh, you, of course, have a, tensions and a eventual war with Georgia in 2008. So there's a lot of, you know, in Russia at the time, there's a lot of concern about, you know, colored revolution, quote unquote. So what, what was the politics behind the decision to have this in Kyiv? You know, what did each, each the Russians and the Ukrainians kind of demand about over this? Yeah. So what I kind of discovered as I dug into this topic is that immediately after the Orange Revolution, the Russian Orthodox Church, in partnership with the Kremlin, and when I say the Kremlin, I'm really meaning the, the administration of the president. They, and again, I don't have any like insider knowledge on this. I'm not sitting down and like, doing like anonymous interviews of people in the Kremlin. This is all based on you know like publicly available records. But what happens? What, let me give you. Let me backpedal a little bit. Let's go back to the year 2000. In the year 2000, um, Patriarch Alexei, Kirill's predecessor, he held a public memory event with Kuchma, Lukashenko, and Putin. And at this ceremony, there was something, there was, this, there was a kind of this, this gigantic kind of tacky church bell that they called 
uh, what do they call it? The, the bell of the, of the brotherly unity of the three Slavic nations. Okay. And on each and, and each of the three brotherly nations, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, each of them was symbolized on the bell with the image of a saint. And what's interesting is that the image used for Ukraine was St. Volodymyr. Okay. So at two th- in 2000, the ROC and Putin was actually been this, at this event as well and gave a speech as the then president elect of Russia. Um, so in 2000, before the kind of revival of the day of the baptism of Rus, the Moscow Patriarchate was willing to say, Vladimir is, or Vladimir, as they would say, is a uniquely Ukrainian saint that can represent Ukrainian national identity. Well, as you rightly pointed out, then comes what? Then comes the Orange Revolution. Okay. And as we all know, Viktor Yanukovych, you know, his basically illegal uh, election is overthrown. There's a revote, and Viktor Yushchenko defeats Yanukovych. And, but on the on the eve of the revote, Patriarch Alexei gives this very impassioned speech to the people of Ukraine, in which, for the first time, he tells them, "We are all one people. We are all Svetaya Rus. We are all Holy Rus." Because we have all emerged from one ancient baptismal font in the Nidapur River. Okay. And this, and what we see happening here is that it is very clearly the Orange Revolution that prompts the Moscow Patriarchate to develop what I call the, the propaganda of Svetaya Rus, the propaganda of Holy Rus, which is, of course, a very old mythology that was being once again refitted and revitalized for the current political context, per, per situation. And so following the Orange Revolution, the source of the Russian imperial claim to Belarus and Ukraine becomes unmistakable. It is now this one baptismal font, this this Kievan baptismal font that they constantly refer to, which is the the origin of Holy Rus, okay? And they, this, this, this ideology, this, you know, at its core, this neo-imperial ideology becomes the Moscow Patriarchate's uh, main attempt or main ideology that is aimed at keeping the territory of Ukraine under its control as the as 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 its exclusive canonical jurisdiction. Okay. Now, th- now, there's a lot going on here, so it starts to get a little complicated. I'll try to make it as simple as I can. But basically, what then unfolds over the course of from about 2005 to 2008 is that the Russian side, the Russian faction, they begin to actively campaign for a special day in Ukraine to be celebrated on July 28th on the feast day of St. Vladimir. That they and and what's funny is that the the people driving this campaign are not ones that you would typically associate with, you know, piety and prayers and fasting. the 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 main mover and shaker was a kind of washed up or never was rock star named Ole Karamazov, who's who played in a group called Bratia Karamazov, the Brothers Karamazov, and he he proposed. He proposed the, uh, 
Yushchenko, we, you know, there should be a day of the baptism of Rus that is a national Ukrainian holiday that celebrates the unity of the East Slavic peoples. And that's what this whole thing is about. The, the Moscow Patriarchate, and definitely supported by the uh, administration of the president, to what degree, I, I don't know and we'll never know. But Putin did speak out in favor of this, by the way, when he met with the Ukrainian president at, at, at that time. But they were looking for a way to oppose, you know, the Orange Revolution, to oppose Yushchenko. And they settled on this strategy. They settled on this politics of memory. And that is the thing that we have to keep in mind whenever we're talking about this. You know, when the Moscow Patriarchate or when Putin is pushing this idea of the baptism of Rus, and when they're pushing for this holiday, what they're really pushing for is, a, is of course, not the past as it actually happened. And not Vladimir, whoever he was, you know, as, as, a, as a real historical figure in the late 10th, early 11th century. What they're pushing is is a politics of memory, a version of the past, which is a complete, which is basically complete make believe, based on you know ancient myths. They're pushing a version of the past that serves their political interests in the present. And what were those political interests? Well, we know very well, of course, that Putin is called the collapse of the USSR, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, and we now know that he has launched one of the most irrational and 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 brutal wars in recent memory to try to keep it within the Russian sphere of influence. At this point, however, they were still using soft power tools. And one of the main soft power tools that they were using was this ideology of Holy Bruce. This brings up the question of like, you know, and this is a long historiographical question, and that is, what is the relationship between the church and the state, right? This goes all the way back to this issue that, you know, is is the Orthodox Church the handmaiden of the state? Um, what is your view of this relationship, given the, how closely, you know, the, the Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church's soft power around this holiday or around the celebration coincides with the, you know, the presidential administration's imperialist desires? It's a great question. It's a really complex question. There, among scholars of orthodoxy, whether they're studying the Middle Ages or the Imperial period or, or the post-Soviet period, there is a lot of different opinions about this. I think the first and most obvious thing you can say is that there's not one stable, ever-present, pres- consistent relationship between the two. You know, there are there are it fluctuates. You know, it's the relationship is is definitely closer at certain points in time and definitely more distant at other points in time. Now, this idea that the church is the handmaiden of the state. For me, now I have some colleagues. For instance, I, I was actually I was just out to lunch with a Russian colleague who, and I was telling him about my book project, telling him that I was writing, you know, about the memory politics of the church, and he just looked at me and says, The church has no memory politics of its own. It's the church only serves the state. And this, this, is, this is an attitude that I run into very frequently. You know, and it's, it's, in my opinion, and I don't mean to be like too critical in this sense, but this is a kind of leftover from the Soviet period. Like most, most even most of the Russian intelligentsia, I would say, and many of the people who, who study Russia for a living that I've come into contact with, they're... 
kind of perception of the church is at about the level of the Soviet anti-religious poster. You know, like they we're not we're not a we're not aware of it, but we ba- but we just there's this massively oversimplified um, kind of caricature that that you know from think about it from the, the just from those posters in the 1920s. You know, um, is a lot of that true? Of course, a lot of that is true, but when you start to dig into it, and if you're like me, you devote yourself to the history of the church, you know, you start to realize it's slightly more complex than that. How? Well, I can't speak for all the periods because I'm certainly not an expert in all of them, but I can tell you in the post-Soviet period, the church, for starters, the church is just one player, what Marlene Laurel has called one ideological entrepreneur in, you know, in a much, much larger uh, ecosystem that is, you know, within the Putin system. Okay. But at the same time, so, so the, so the, so the, and when I, and again, there we have to stop and say for a moment, what, what am I talking about when I say the church? Am I talking about a, a, a kind, humble old woman who lights a candle and, and goes to communion in some rural parish, you know, in uh, rural Russia? No, I mean, obviously I'm not talking about that. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the clerical elite of the Moscow patriarchy. I'm talking about the people that we kind of take as these like avatars or these symbols of the church hierarchy. Okay. But the thing we have to keep in mind is that there is actually no such thing as one homogenous thing called the Russian Orthodox church. You know, scholars identify different scholars give different numbers, but there's probably somewhere between like four to eight different factions that have really pretty radically different versions of the religion and as a result have very different politics of memory. The four that I, the four that I focus on the most in my book are, well, of course, first I kind of delineate the church of the hierarchs and the church of the hierarchs, these guys, these, the patriarch, the metropolitans, the bishops, like they really, for starters, you have to think of them as kind of a business corporation. Um, and, and like, they really seem to believe that they and they alone are the church, you know, the, and, and this is kind of, you know, classic clericalism 101. Uh, but I can tell you from someone that studies this on a daily basis, it is thriving in contemporary Russia. Um, so that's, that's definitely one group, the hierarchs. The second group is something I call Siloviki orthodoxy or the, you know, basically like military orthodoxy. This is the kind of the new post-Soviet civil religion that, in my opinion, has really been kind of the real ideology driving the invasion of Ukraine. And it is focused on the memory and the cult of the great victory, Velikaya Pabieta, in World War II. Okay. The third group is, you know, you can call them the monarchists, you can call them the Sarabozhniki. These are the groups that really idolize pre-revolutionary Russia. And especially there's this, this, this uh, fantastic, uh, zealous devotion to, to the Romanovs and, you know, the, the royal martyrs. Okay. And then the fourth group, the group, which, you know, quite frankly, I am much more sympathetic to than any of the others is what you can call the orthodoxy of the intelligentsia or, or, you know, if you want to make it even kind of more simple, I think the liberal orthodoxy. This is the group that, you know, they came to the church by reading Father Alexander Schmemann, their Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, and they, they 
you know, it's, these are very, these are very different. This is a very different religion, for instance, than, you know, the, the religion that we see, for instance, on the, on, in the mosaics of the main cathedral of the Russian dark forces in, in Patriot park outside of Moscow. Um, so that's the first thing you got to, we have to keep this in mind when we're talking about, you know, the church is the handmaiden of the state. Well, which church are we talking about? I'm very comfortable saying that Patriarch Kirill and his hierarchs, while not absolutely at all times in cahoots with Putin and his regime, they have very enthusiastically sought to partner themselves with the Kremlin on a whole host of different projects. And there's, it's not going to surprise you, Sean, what that reason is. Money, 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 money. Right? Yeah. I mean, this, this is what brings me to, and to have you kind of talk about the the this uh i don't know i we talked about the word schism the the conflict let's say between kiev and moscow churches because i've heard stories about you know going to this money question it's partially about church property right who who controls the property of the churches say in ukraine for example um and and that doesn't that doesn't even factor in all of the geopolitical and perhaps liturgical uh conflict. So w- what is the nature of that conflict between these two churches? Again, fantastically complex. It goes back far beyond 1991. Um but at at its core it's a question of, it's not just the question of the church. It's a question of what is the post-Soviet space? What is, what is post-Soviet Ukraine? Okay. Is post-Soviet Ukraine a satellite of Ruski Mir, a satellite of the Russian world? You know, is it still mainly uh, within the sphere of influence of Russia? Or is Ukraine an absolutely unique and independent nation of its own that gets to choose its own allies, that gets to choose, you know, whether it wants to be a part of, say, the European Union or NATO, or whether, you know, whether those choices are made for it by its formal imperial hegemon in Moscow, that all of these questions, all of these things that are such important and, and rich and lively debates right now among, you know, journalists, Russianists, Slavists, you know, we're all talking about this stuff. And the schism is a part of that same conversation. It's a part of that same political context. In 1991, when the, you know, well, let me, let me start with something even more simple than that. The thing you have to remember, and the, one of the main reasons that the Russian Orthodox Church, the Moscow Patriarchy, has been so useful to Moscow, to, to Putin, is because it has retained essentially the same jurisdictional borders that it had since before the revolution of 1917. So if you're an imperialist, if you're a Russian imperialist, and clearly the people in charge of contemporary Russia are imperialists, the church is a natural ally because it continues to have, you know, a legal canonical right to those territories that you, you know, still apparently seem to think belong to you or should be a part of you, right? So, so the church's the church's canonical jurisdictions are ripe for exploitation for political irredentism and revanchism, as I guess what I'm trying to say. 
Now, patriots in Ukraine, you, you know, Ukrainian, you can call them Ukrainian nationalists or just Ukrainians who want to be independent from, from Russia for, for obvious reasons. They have been fighting against this for a long time. They, you know, it, breakaway churches were uh, arose in 1917 during the Civil War. They arose again in, in the early 1940s when the Germans occupied. Um, so there has been this movement for a long time for a a church that is free from control of Moscow. Okay, and. The other player that we haven't even talked about in this in this conversation is the ecumenical patriarchate of Constantinople. Constantinople, of course, now being modern day Istanbul. And so, yes, on the one hand, the schism is about you know Ukraine asserting its national independence and doing that by asserting that his it has its absolutely independent own Orthodox Church, what would be called an autocephalous church. But for several decades now, there has been a debate within global orthodoxy about who has the right to award that autocephaly to Ukraine. Okay. And again, I, I, I cannot stress enough how much I'm like grossly oversimplifying this very, very long and complicated uh, historical and, and, and kind of ecclesiastical conflict. But what I can say is that basically there has been a competition for global supremacy in the Orthodox Church between the Moscow Patriarchate and the Ecumenical Patriarchate. And the Ecumenical Patriarchate claims that it and it alone, as the mother church of kind of all of the Orthodoxy, right? Because it was the it was the main church during the Byzantine Empire, that it alone can award a tomos of autocephaly to other churches, thereby making them canonically independent. Moscow says, Moscow, you know, for starters, Moscow gave, for instance, autocephaly to the Orthodox Church of America, which the ecumenical patriarchy has never agreed to even recognize. So the, 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 the battle, the ecclesiastical battle over Ukraine is, is about who Ukraine belongs to. to. You know, is it, and here's why it's so important. Let's get down to like the money and the, and the, and the figures. And we can... We'll use the figures, the most recent figures, and not the ones from 2008. The Russian Orthodox Church has, a, I mean, and all of this is in flux at the moment because of the war, but like recent statistical surveys dating to, I think the most recent one I saw was 2017. The Russian Orthodox Church basically claimed to have somewhere around 35, 36, 37,000 churches. Okay. But what they do not tell you is that roughly 12,000 of those churches are in Ukraine. And are a part of something called the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Okay, so this is the traditionally main canonical church that was, you know, in communion with Moscow for many centuries. Now, in the, at the 2008 day of the baptism of Rus, and this is what I talk about in the article, there was an attempt by uh, Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople and Yushchenko to basically take all of the divided branches of orthodoxy in Ukraine, and I won't go into who all those different branches are, but there's, there's three main ones, and unite them into one new united autocephalous Orthodox Church of Ukraine under the Amophorium of the Ecumenical Patriarchy. And if that attempt by Yushchenko, that daring attempt, had been successful, 
all of those churches together would have had about 14, 15,000 parishes, I think, something like that. Now, if you actually count the number of parishes that are in Russia, the Russian Federation alone, and not the ones it has in other, in other countries, there's about 14,000. So if this attempt at the day of the baptism of Rus in 2008, if this had been successful, the Ukrainian, this newly unified Ukrainian Orthodox Church would have become the biggest, uh, the single biggest church in global orthodoxy, which would be a gigantic blow to the way that the Moscow Patriarchate sees itself because it's, it basically says, you know, oh, you know, ecumenical patriarchy, you know, it's, it, I don't know if you remember, but in 1453, your country was, uh, over, you know, when you were overthrown by the Turks and, you know, we've kind of been leading the charge ever since then. Um, so that is why this is so important. And I mean, it'd be like, so if the Moscow Patriarchy loses Ukraine, which it's, and now to get everyone up to speed, that basically happened on May 27th of this year. Like it, it looks like, and that's why this war is such a disaster for the Moscow Patriarchy. Even if, if Kirill seems to be blessing it on TV, like, trust me, he, this is not in his best interest, and he knows that better than anybody. Basically, what has happened with the Moscow Patriarchy since February 24th is that it's lost. It's like it's like a company that lost 40 percent of of its its clients, its you know its business. So it's that is why this is a big deal. I and now I can see it, it's clear why this contest over the competing Saint. Vladimir's or Volodymyr's, right? Who who is claiming this historical figure for their present day? And at one point, at the end of the article, you have this really interesting thing where you you say uh, this this conflict between Saint Volodymyr, the Ukrainian nationalist, and Saint Vladimir, the Russian imperialist. So who are these two Volodymyr Vladimir uh, people that <laughs> that are seemingly in conflict with one another? <laughs> So, and I, if, if this is interesting to anybody, I do encourage people to read the article because it is an incredible soap opera, you know, like, it, like you couldn't make this stuff. You could not make this stuff up if you tried. And I'm having to skip over a lot of like very, very colorful and, and just absurdist kind of, um, events that both sides were doing. And that's the other thing that I, you know, you have, you have to be honest, the Ukrainians politicized this to basically the same extent as the Russians, right? Like, you know, Patriarch Philaret, who was the, you know, the, the leader of, of what was called the, Ky- the Kiev Patriarchate, um, which was seen by the Moscow Patriarchate as a schismatic group, you know, in all of his rival celebrations for what he called the day of the baptism of, of Kiev and Rus Ukraine, which is an incredibly anachronistic thing, you know, Ukraine did not exist in the 10th or 11th century. Um, you know, he says in all of these, you know, he'll say prayers like, and may the Lord God, you know, um, bless Ukraine so that it may enter into the European Union in the same way that Vladimir entered into Ukraine in nine, excuse me, entered into Europe in 988, right? So like both sides are using Vladimir or Vladimir to get what they want. Both sides, you know, this is not a one, exclusively one-sided exploitation of political memory. Um, but, you know, just one side is is considerably more you know politically sympathetic at the moment for most of us um so to go back to your question what the ukrainians ended up doing with this day of the baptism of given Rus ukraine was kind of promoting a version of the past 
that again was largely fantastical, in which Volodymyr was a a symbol of post-colonialism, anti-authoritarianism, and you know he's draped in the in the yellow and blue of the Ukrainian flag, and he is he is the promise of a European choice, or what Poroshenko kept saying, you know Volodymyr's European choice. You know this was about using Volodymyr as the symbol that Ukraine was done with its past as a as a vassal of the Russian Empire, and it was going to be integrated into Europe because that's what it had originally been. Okay, this narrative that the Ukraine is is somehow you know the source uh, of 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 all of you know all of Russian history, and therefore is inseparable from Russia, no matter what its current inhabitants want. Like you know, this is a this they were using Volodymyr to strongly reject that um, you know that basically that form of kind of imperialism. Now, say Vladimir the Russian imperialist was exactly the opposite. Okay, this what like like the statue standing now on Borovitskaya Ploshin. This was a Vladimir that is conservative, authoritarian, uh, as I said, imperialistic. You know, this is a Vladimir with a sword in one hand and a cross and the other, you know, beckoning to Ukrainians and Russians to accept an alternative to the pluralistic and liberal West, right? Like, this is the idea that there is, you know, this is the, this is the Prince Vladimir of Holy Rus and Holy Rus as Patriarch Kirill said in 2008, when he got on stage at the concert that these guys had organized on um, Kurshatik Street, he said, Holy Rus, you know, Bel- he said, Belarus, or Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, this is Holy Rus, Holy Rus is invincible, Holy Rus is beauty, and we all together, this is Holy Rus, right? Like, Holy Rus, the day of the baptism of Rus, the Vladimir of the, of the Russian Orthodox Church, is, is a politics of memory designed to keep the the Russian Empire, the Soviet Empire, intact in a way that, as we now see, is clearly uh, impossible. And, and finally, you know, uh, as you know, you've already spoken a little bit about how how this really drives you nuts <laughs> uh, as as a as a as a participant in the church. And I'm just kind of curious, like, what do other people that you you know know in the church who are just lay worshipers I, I mean i don't know if you can speak to this but how do they make sense of all of this like do they care is it like something that happens over there and i'm just going to go and you know go to my church and do my thing and all of this like how does this resonate within the community well i'm currently a part of the finnish orthodox church because i live in helsinki so I can well, I, I think it actually might be interesting to kind of compare and contrast the Finnish context to the American context. Um, for starters, the first thing I would say is like we should avoid the temptation to like imagine some average normal Orthodox Christian because I mean there's a just a preposterous bewildering diversity to people within the church politically, ideologically, racially, like. The Orthodox Church is not as a, a homogenous group of people who all think the same way. And in the church in the United States, and, and to a lesser, much lesser extent, I would say at the moment to the, to the church in Finland, you, there are definitely segments of, of people who have who get their news from sources that I would not recommend. 
who see the current conflict in Ukraine in a way that, you know, it they seem to be, you know, drinking from the teat of the Kremlin propaganda machine. Okay. That element exists. I cannot sit here and tell you and act and pretend like that element does not exist. Is, in my experience, especially, I mean, it would depend on different jurisdictions. This would be a, you know, larger or a, a smaller group of people, depending on which jurisdiction you're in. But for the most part, I would say that is a very, very, very small group of people. To get back to your original question, what do people think of this? The vast majority of them, they have no clue that any of this is going on. You know, they, they don't know what the day of the baptism of Bruce is. Now, what I would say is different, you know, and this is, I've written a couple of op-eds about this. The difference now is that, you know, there has been this explosion of media interest in the figure of Patriarch Kirill and the role of the Russian Orthodox Church as kind of, um, you know, there's been all of these headlines and a lot of major uh, media outlets, you know, basically saying like, Kirill blesses Putin's holy war, right? Like that's been one of the main journalistic narratives. And it's not, it is not necessarily untrue. Again, it's an oversimplification. Um, so I would say that right now at the moment, there is more awareness of this than there has ever been at any time that I've been a member of the Orthodox Church, which has been almost 20 years now. And I would say people that formerly would have felt very sympathetic to the Moscow Patriarchate, and in fact, people who I know were members of Moscow Patriarchate parishes in the United States, they have completely uh, renounced you know, the, the current narrative, the current ideology, the current propaganda that is emanating from Kirill and his regime. Um, again, not everyone, but the people that I'm familiar with for the most part, and I can point to some very noticeable and very like active users on Facebook who are exceptions, but that has been kind of, as you would expect, that has been the general tendency, like horror at what appears to be the leader of a church they associated themselves with blessing the murder of innocent people in Ukraine. Like that's, that's not what people signed up for. That was Sean Griffin. Sean Griffin is a core fellow in the Collegium of Advanced Studies at the University of Helsinki, where his research focuses on the history of the Orthodox Church and its role in the making of cultural memory from the liturgy and chronicles of medieval Kiev to the art house cinema and digital propaganda of modern Moscow. His first book, The Liturgical Past in Byzantium and Early Rus, published by Cambridge University Press, was the winner of the W. Bruce Lincoln Book Prize and the Ecclesiastical History Society Book Prize. And now he is the winner of the Eve Levin Prize for his article, Revolution, Raskol, and Rock and Roll, the 1,020th Anniversary of the Day of Baptism of Rus, published in the Russian Review. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and as you know, this is the SRB Podcast. SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. So if you like this podcast, please help me out and share it on social media. Tell your friends, family, anyone who will listen to you to listen to this. Drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter or at srbpodcast.org to let me know what you think of the show. And as always, the SRB Podcast would love to have your support. This is a nonprofit 
educational endeavor and I want to keep it completely free of paid advertisings and open for listeners. So please help me keep it that way by going to srbpodcast.org and join the table of ranks and become a monthly patron. Until next time, bye.